Romans chapter 7. Going to, uh, Lord willing, time willing here, do uh, all of Romans 7 and the first verse of Romans chapter 8, because I think that ties perfectly right into that. So let's do the smart thing and just have a word of prayer here. Heavenly Father, once again, just thankful to be here. Just pray that as always, Lord, you would teach, we would listen through your spirit. Uh, just be with lots of families still out there traveling during the holidays. I also know a lot of sickness going around. Just be with them, Lord. Keep them safe. Bring them back safe. And we just thank you and praise you for the time we have here this morning in your name. Amen. Now, We've been going through our study here through Romans for quite some time, and the first five chapters of Romans are all about the idea of the gospel, presenting the gospel, what the gospel is, what it means, the importance of the gospel, of having that salvation with Jesus Christ. So the first five chapters sets the scene of what the gospel is, how Jesus is the only remedy for sin, how we're all sinners saved by grace. But in chapter 6, it now goes with the assumption that you get that, you understand that, that you're saved, now Romans 6 deals with this mindset of, okay, if I'm still saved, why am I still doing things I shouldn't be doing? Why am I still sinning? If this whole thing of sin's been defeated by Christ and I'm born again, why does sin still have effect on me? So chapter 6 introduced us to the concept of you have to die, not physically, but you have to die spiritually to those things that bring you down. And once you die to those things, you can finally start to live. If we died with Christ, we will live with Christ, Romans 6 says. But Romans 7 takes it one step further. Romans 7 then gets into the details here of, I try to die to sin, but the sin still pops up. So with that mindset, what happens here? Well, verse 1 of Romans chapter 7 speaks about the law. Now you've got to remember here, Romans was written to a, a Jewish audience also, so from their perspective, they were still clinging to this idea of the law. But I need to do the law. I need to follow the law. Now, I would assume most of us here don't struggle with that concept of having to follow the law. None of you are coming up to me saying, James, I just don't know how to live out of Exodus. You're not worried about it. But you may not cling to the law, but you sometimes cling to this religious background that maybe you were born with, you were raised with. And that religious background can keep you from going deeper in your walk with Christ because just as the Jews were clinging to the law for goodness and salvation, some people still today cling to religion for salvation, cling to religion for goodness. And so as Paul is saying here in Romans 7, you have to die you have to let go of that law. Sometimes we have to let go of that religion. Let's talk about this. Verse 1 of Romans 7. It says, Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. So Paul uses the example here of marriage with this idea of the law, and just as we have to die to the law to be set free. Well, once we die to the law and set free, then what happens to us? Verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ that you may be married to another. See, we die to the law, and now we're married to Christ. For us, we die to that religion, and now we're married to Christ. See, the thing is, we don't need more religion in the world. There's tons of religion. What we need is more relationship. Lots and lots of people have religion. It's very difficult to find somebody who has no religion in their life. We don't need that. We need to die to that concept. And now we need to live to the idea of relationship. So as verse 4 says, we die to the law through the body of Christ, and now we can be married to Christ. Look at verse 4. To him who was raised from the dead that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Now, very simply put here, look at the point that it's trying to make. Verse 4, look at the last sentence. That we should bear fruit to God, 
Look at verse 5. Or we're going to bear fruit to death. See, how simple is that? Whatever you do, whatever action you have is going to do one of two things. It either bears fruit to God or it bears fruit to death. There is no middle ground here. And this is what happens. We try to spend our whole Christian life trying to find this happy medium middle ground where I say, you know what, I know I'm a whole lot better than that person, but I know I'm not as good as them, but I'm better than that person. Or you know what, I know what I'm doing may not be really right, but I also know people are doing a lot worse stuff than me. So we try to find ourselves in this comfortable little middle ground, and God says that's not the way it is. The way it is is verse 4. Look at the last sentence again. Are you bearing fruit to God? Or verse 5, are you bearing fruit to death? You have to choose one of those things that you're going to do because the purpose and point of this now is what? Look at the end of verse 6. That we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. I've been born again. I've been saved. And now the Holy Spirit lives inside of me, so now there's a newness in my life, and I don't want to do the old things that I used to do. That was all what Romans 6 is about, is you're going to bear fruit. Are you bearing fruit to death? Or are you bearing fruit to life? Let's build on this. Can you go with me to Matthew chapter 7? Matthew chapter 7. Here in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus now takes this point and builds on it. We're either bearing fruit to life or we're bearing fruit to death. Fruit to God or not. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Verse 16 of Matthew 7. You would know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Uh, how simple is that? Kind of a weird thing to think about, but the Bible says you're a tree. Now, I don't know what type of tree you are, but you're a tree. And this tree that you are, you're going to produce fruit. And you're going to either produce fruit that's a good fruit, or you're going to produce fruit that's a bad fruit. No, there's not a middle ground fruit. It's either a good fruit or it's a bad fruit. And so what Jesus is saying is that's the way he looks at it, is every action we do in life either helps us and takes us deep in our walk in relationship with Christ or it takes us farther away in our walk in relationship with Christ. But what happens when it's the bad fruit? Well, the answer is given right there in verse 19. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. So you have to stop and ask yourself, as a tree, what type of fruit are you producing? Because Romans 7 says it's either fruit to God or fruit to death. Now, we can sit here and overanalyze this whole fruit thing. Well, the truth of the matter is I'm willing to bet that 99.9% .9 of the time, that action that you're debating, whether it's right or wrong, you already know whether it's right or wrong. I've shared this with you a lot. A lot of times people come into my office for, for counseling. Pastor, i got a situation. I don't know what I should do. I let them explain the situation. What's the first thing I ask them? What do you think you should do? I think I should do this. Well, then I don't know why we're talking. <laughs> you know, the Holy Spirit generally reveals to us what's right or wrong. And generally what the next thing is, I just needed to hear someone else say it. I'm, I'm that way. I mean, I'll go up to Rich. I'll go up to Dawn. I'll go up and say, hey, here's the situation. I've been praying about it. I don't know what I, do, I should do. I think you should do this. I think I should do this. And they're like, that sounds good. And it's like, you know what? Sometimes you just hear that other person, some of you trust spiritually just to say that, and sometimes that's all you hear. But very rarely is there ever a situation where you have to stop and say, Lord, I don't know if this is right or wrong. It's pretty straightforward. Everything you do is either good fruit or it's bad fruit. We know what we're supposed to do. So now with that mindset, it takes us to that last passage in verse 6. Now that we know whatever we do is good fruit or bad fruit, what are we supposed to do with this mindset? Now we're supposed to serve. Why did God save you? He saved you because he loved you. Now, we've already covered this numerous times. He did not save you because there was an ounce of goodness in you. He did not save you because you were the needed piece of the puzzle. He did not save you because you brought something to the spiritual table. No. The only thing we bring to the table is sin. He saved us because he loved us. Now, now that we're saved, now he says, I want you to serve me. Serve. What's the first word study we did in Romans? Back in Romans 1, verse 1, Paul said, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. 
a bondservant. A bondservant is a willing slave that gives their life willfully over to the Lord and says, I let go of all my passions and desires and wants, and I say, you lead me and guide me. Paul says that's what you need to be is to be a bondservant. So when you give that over to the Lord, then you serve him. Now, as a good servant, as a good slave, what do I never say? No, master, no. See, this is the problem. We like that term of a bondservant. That there's a master that loves us so much and we love him so much, and so therefore we work out this deal where I can serve him. But as we joke out here numerous times, I only want to serve the upper middle class, Lord. That's all. Lord, I only want to work with good, godly Christian people. I only want to have saved family members. What happens if the Lord says, at these holidays events, I'm going to bring those unsaved family members in so you can serve me by loving them and witnessing. What happens if the Lord says, I'm going to put you in a workplace where you're the only believer so that way you can serve me by being a witness? What happens if the Lord says, upper middle class? No. But there's a whole bunch of families over here that are really hurting, that society has cast out. How about you go love them? See, we don't get to choose where we serve. And to be quite honest, I don't get to choose the fruit that is produced. I've had situations out here before where we really prayed over something. We really felt the Lord was going to move and do something. And so we went forward in it. And we had this great vision of what was going to come out of it. And what happened is it's almost like you think you're planting an apple tree and all of a sudden a bunch of pears come on it. You're happy, but you sit there and you scratch your head saying, Lord, this is not what we envisioned. God says, I'm the one that produces the fruit. And I remember years ago there was a time where someone got very frustrated because we did a ministry opportunity that was very fruitful, but it was just the total opposite fruit that we wanted it to be. And this person got very frustrated, and I remember having a conversation with them saying, you don't get to choose the fruit. You just plant the seeds, you're faithful, and God takes care of it. Too often we want the crop to be what we want, and God says it doesn't work that way. He says, you just serve me. Now, if you're still here in Matthew, you're not that far away, go to the book of John, please. We're just going to look at two quick verses here in John because this is what happens when it comes to the whole serving God thing. And these are verses that we go to a lot. It's John 15. The problem is we look at these passages and we say, okay, I'm supposed to bear fruit to God, not bear fruit to death, and I'm supposed to serve him. And we usually say, how am I supposed to serve him? Or really what are we saying is, what's my purpose in life? You've heard me talk about this a lot. Your purpose in life is so simple. Your purpose in life is to see souls get saved in Christ Jesus. That's your purpose. And what happens is someone comes into me and they say, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't know what my purpose is. So I say something to the fact of your purpose is to do very simply this. If someone is saved, you encourage them to go deeper in their walk with the Lord. If they're not saved, your purpose is to hopefully see them get saved in Christ. And then this is what I usually hear back. Okay, yeah, yeah, I know that, but I'm talking about something else. There is nothing else. That's the beauty of this is that's what matters more than anything. You will find job fulfillment in serving God. This is what the Lord says. Look here in John 15, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Look at verse 16 of John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear fruit. I have no say in this. The Lord chose, appointed, and my job is to go produce fruit for him. That's my purpose. So when I have that mindset, it makes things go so much easier. Now, is there more to that than just seeing souls get saved? Yeah, there's offshoots of that. You want to be the best spouse you can be. You want to raise godly children. You want to be a light and a witness at work. You want to be an encouragement to your friends. You want to be a productive member of society. Yes, those things are all valuable. But what matters most is God says, I chose you, I appointed you, that you should go bear fruit for me. Spiritual fruit for him. Fruit unto life, not fruit unto death, that is done by serving the Lord. So with that mindset, now we can jump back to Romans 7, because now, if that's what the goal is, why is it so hard to do? It's so hard to do because there's a stupid sin problem. Verse 7 of Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? No, 
Certainly not. The law is not sin. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. But what Paul is simply saying there is the purpose of the law is to reveal sin. That's back from Romans 3, verse 19. The purpose of the law is for you to read through the law and say, I can't do this. And for God to say, that's the whole point. The law reveals sin. What Paul is saying in verse 7 is, I wouldn't have known coveting is wrong until I read and said, coveting's wrong. Verse 8, but sin taken opportunity by the commandment produced in me a manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Paul says, as I started reading the more and more in the law, there was this, verse 8, this snowball effect. Sin took an opportunity, and next thing I know, oh, wait a second, coveting's wrong? That's what the Bible says. And then I read again, wait, wait, lusting's wrong? Yeah, that's what the Bible says. Cursing's wrong? Yeah. So what happens is, you start reading, and the more you read, you start realizing it. It's just sin. God says, yeah. As you start reading this law of rules, you start realizing there's more and more sin. So sin just starts snowballing in your life because you realize it's wrong. And as you realize it's wrong, it starts to affect you and it starts to bother you. And as these things start to bother you, then you're worked up about it. Verse 9, I was alive once without the law. Basically, ignorance is bliss. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. The more I read, the more I realize what I'm doing wrong. Isn't that the truth? I have people run into this all the time. If you read from Genesis to Revelation, you will walk away from the Bible knowing a couple things. Number one, you'll know that God loves you unconditionally. But number two, you realize you're a sinner. That's a package deal. Because if we weren't sinners, why would God have to love us unconditionally? See, the sin is revealed as we study. Anytime someone comes and gets saved and they're new to the Word and new to church and Christianity, I always tell them, go read a gospel first. John's a good one. You know, maybe go read John or Mark or Matthew. Read one of those. Now, once they get done reading a gospel, the assumption is they have a nice foundation of who Jesus is. Then I usually send them to the book of James. You'll walk away from James with spiritual black eyes. James is a one-two punch. You will walk away from five short chapters in James with your head down, your tail between your legs, and say, oh my goodness, I am sin. And then once they come with James, and they're usually in tears, I just say, now go read 1 John. Because 1 John is like a big God hug. Go get done with 1 John, and God loves you. And the nice thing about that three-packaged tear is you get who Jesus is, you get the fact that you're sin, but you also get the fact that God just loves you. See, and what Paul is saying is, the more I read and studied the law, the more I found out I'm sin. Verse 11, for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me. By it, it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy. The commandment holy and just and good. It's not that the law is bad. The law is just doing its job. The purpose of the law is to reveal sin. And Paul says, when I got into the law, <coughs> excuse me, when I got into the law, I read about covetousness, and as I read about covetousness, I realized I'm a sinner. And as the more I read about covetousness, the more I realized I'm also a sinner in this area, in this area, in this area. The snowball effect, this sin floodgate opened. And now what am I supposed to do about it? Isn't that what sin does? Sin, you give sin an inch, and it's never content. It just keeps taking and taking and taking. Look at the example in the life of David. David had this sin with Bathsheba, right? We all know about Bathsheba. He committed adultery with her. But look how it started. It started out with David just being lazy. David was lazy. Now, if you ever study out Proverbs, laziness is a sin. But why is laziness a sin? Because, well, the laziness of David led to David then lusting. So David's now lusting for Bathsheba. Well, now that he's lusting for Bathsheba, he goes and gets Bathsheba, and now he commits adultery with Bathsheba. Well, after he commits adultery with Bathsheba, he has to have Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed, so then Uriah is killed, and then now David lives a lie for a year. So the laziness led to lusting, which then led to adultery, which led to murder, which led to more lying, which then led to sin just kept creeping in and creeping in. It was this horrible snowball effect that just kept 
growing in David's life. And that's exactly what sin does. Sin is never content with just one little white lie. Sin just wants to keep growing and taking over. You don't need to turn there, but in the book of James it says this, out of James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It says, Each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. See, that's what happens. You're tempted. See, temptation is not a sin. It's what you do when you're tempted that determines whether it's a sin or not. You're going to be tempted all the time. Temptation is not a sin. The problem is, is if you take that temptation, you take that desire, and you start dwelling on it. You know, you start just thinking about it all the time. Like you can't go home. You can't wait to get home and look up stuff online that you shouldn't look up. You can't wait to talk to that girl you know you shouldn't talk to. You can't wait to try that out. You can't wait to this. You can't wait to that. And your mind is just so focused. And so what happens is that desire then becomes conceived. And what it conceives? What? Sin. And what does sin do? Sin, when it's full grown, the Bible says, bring forth death. See, we all have temptations in our life. All of us do. As we talked about last week, the only way you can battle temptation is to be dead. You can't tempt a dead man. Other than that, there will be temptation. Now, the thing is about temptation, sometimes temptation takes different forms that we normally don't look at. Now, we look at the temptation of the pretty girl walking down the street. Oh, I shouldn't look at that. We look at the temptation of, I don't know, there's a $20 bill laying there. I shouldn't take it. We look at those temptations. I call those the Sunday school temptations. Those are pretty simple, straightforward. Yep, don't look, don't lust, God. Yep, don't steal, don't take. Yep, I got it. What about the other temptations that are a little tougher? What about the temptation of that um, person at work that you can't stand? And so you, you, you go in there and you start thinking, you know what? If he says this, oh, I'm just going to say this. And you have what I call an anger fantasy. Oh, yeah. And he's going to say this. And then I'm going to say this. And I'm going to finally let loose of every frustration I have. Oh, just say it. Just say it. And what happens is you're just dwelling on this anger fantasy. And maybe it's not with the coworker. Maybe it's with your spouse. By golly, if she says it just one more time, just one more time, I've held my tongue. We have these anger fantasies. And see, what happens is that's also a temptation. Whatever you are thinking about, whatever you are dwelling about, if you know it's not good, if you know it's not right, if you know it's not godly, it just will overtake you. But what happens if it's not an act? What happens if it's the sin of worry? You'll never verbally yell at anybody. You'll never cuss somebody out. You're not going to steal $20 bills from old ladies. But you will sit there and just let worry fester, anxiety fester inside of you. That sin that when it's conceived will bring forth death. What death will it bring? It will bring the death of joy in your life. This is what sin does. It just stays there and grows and overtakes. And it's such a danger. Jump back to Romans 7 here. Look at uh, verses uh, 13 and 14. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me. Through what is good, so that the sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. See, that's what sin does. It becomes exceedingly sinful. It just keeps sinning more and more, snowballing more and more. In fact, in the book of Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 5, if you're taking notes, write down 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. The Bible refers to sin as leaven. Now, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I know anything about baking because I don't. But I know that leaven is a rising agent that makes the bread rise. Well, that's the picture of sin. It gets into your life and it just expands. And it overtakes. It's never satisfied. It will destroy. It will bring down marriages. It will bring down lives. It will bring down relationships. It will just overtake everything. And that's exactly what sin does. And this is what Paul was trying to say here. Sin became exceedingly sinful. It's the sin snowball effect. There is no such thing as one little white lie. There's not any such thing as one casual look that no one saw. There's no little cuss word that gets overlooked. There's no little anger that's not going to fester. Sin will cause deep problems in your life, my life, and it will affect 
every single one of us. Turn if you will, to the book of Joshua. Let's look at one example of what sin does. Joshua chapter 7, please. Joshua 7. Here's a great example of what one little action can do. As you're going to Joshua chapter 7, I have to back up a little bit. What happened in Joshua chapter 6 was the Israelites are now moved into the promised land and they're getting ready to conquer the promised land and they defeated Jericho. That's big. That's huge. We all have Jerichos in our life. Immovable objects that we cannot defeat. We all have a Jericho moment. Well, the way the Jews defeated Jerichos, what did they do that was amazing? They marched, yelled, screamed, and blew trumpets. That's what they did. The whole purpose of Jericho was what? God defeated Jericho. So if you have a Jericho in your life, this immovable object that you just, Lord, we'll never get around this. God says, let me remove the object. You just march around it and you just scream, yell, and shoot your trumpets. Because it's all about that. It's all about the Lord doing it. So Jericho is defeated. This is amazing. Well, after they defeat Jericho, they're up to Ai. What's Ai? Ai is nothing. I mean, compared to Jericho, Ai is nothing. So look at Ai here. You have right now in verse, um, uh, verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 7. So this is what happened. Is it says in verse 2 that Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. It says, go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out, spied out Ai. They come back in verse 3, and they said, don't let all the people go up. Let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not worry all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. Ai is nothing. You ever have those moments? I have those moments. I get done. Def- Jericho is defeated in my life. The marriage is going good. The kids are going good. Ministry out at church is going good. Counseling session went good. Everything is going good. And then I see in, in the distance a little Ai. It's nothing. I mean, mean, you know what I just went through? Ai, that's nothing. And so what happens is, don't worry about it. Oh, verse 4. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from the, before the gate as far as Sherebiam and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. See, I have a great spiritual victory in Jericho, but when I come up against an Ai, I'm not prepared, I'm not ready. So what do I do? I run, I flee, my heart melts. That's what one little sin can do. One little sin can tear down ministries, can tear down marriages, can tear down lifelong building of respect and relationships. AIs can destroy you. It's the Jerichos that we're always worried about. Sometimes you've got to worry about the AIs. So what happens? Well, verse 6, Joshua tears his clothes. And, and Joshua has, verses 7 through 9, he has basically a woe is me pity party moment. Alas, Lord God. Why have you brought this people over the Jordan? And it just goes on and on. Now, I know you guys never act that way, right? You never let emotion get the best of you. You don't allow the little things to become big things, right? Now, come on. We all have verses 7 through 9 in our lives. Of, Lord, it's all over. It's just done. The, the, the marriage is over. The life's over. Work's over. You know, everything's just falling apart. Nothing's ever going to get fixed. It's all said. It's all done. It's all over. I'll never be able to do anything again. We have these verses 7 through 9 of just, woe is me. It's, it's just horrible. Look at God's response in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Now, I told the 830 service, my personal opinion, take it or leave it. I don't think this is a get up in the sense of, get up. Like when I'm trying to wake my kids, you know, hey, get up. I think this is, get up. Personal opinion. I think God says, come on, get up. Why do you lie less on your face? Come on, get up. Look at verse 13. Get up. Sanctify the people. Come on, Joshua. Get your head in the game here. Yeah, you got defeated at AI. But we're not going to sit here and mope about it. We're not going to sit here and whine about it. Whereas I like to say, we're not going to have an Eeyore moment. Get up. And this is what happens is a lot of us stop with verses 7 through 9 and it's the end of the world. It's never going to get better. It's just horrible. And then God looks at us in verse 10 and says, get up. You're not going to sit there and mope and whine about this. Why do you lie this on your face? He comes out in verse 11 and says, Israel has sinned. There's a sin in your life. Let's take care of this sin. Verse 13, get up. 
do something about it. Now, this is not get up as God helps those who help themselves type junk. This is get up in the sense of the Lord says, if you're going to sit there and mope and whine and throw yourself in a pit, there's nothing I can do about it. And how many times do we do that spiritually? People will come in, they'll want to talk about stuff, and they don't really want to talk about it. They just want to complain and whine. And I'll let them go for a while, I will. Because sometimes you need a vent, you need to get that off your chest. I understand that. But there has to come a time and a place where you also have to get up and do something about it. That the Lord is moving, the Lord is working, God is doing this. And so what happens is God is telling leadership, Joshua, you can't do this. You've got to get a hold of yourself here. Take a deep breath, focus, get up. So what happens is the Lord says this is what we're going to do. He says there's obviously sin in the camp, and we're going to keep figuring out where this sin is. And then once we figure out who the person that sinned is, then we'll take care of it. And what happened is it's a guy by the name of Achan. What, see, they told everybody at the Battle of Jericho is don't take anything because this is God's victory. You guys didn't do anything. You marched, you blew trumpets, and you yelled. You didn't do anything. So don't take some spoils as if this is yours. Well, what happened was Achan did that. Verse 18. Then he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Comri, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, make confession to him, and tell me now for what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth, in the midst of my tent, with the silver under it. The Lord reveals it's Achan. If you're taking notes, depending on how your translation, your translation may read differently. My New King James, there's four words to focus on in verse 21. First one is, I saw. The second one is, I coveted, then I took, then I hid. Saw, coveted, took, hid. Is that not the progression of sin? You see something you want, so you see it. Now, right there you have to stop. See, according to James, that desire can conceive to sin. It, 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 if Achan would have just saw it and said, yeah, that, that's nice, but I'm not looking. I'm not going to look. The problem was Achan went to the next word, which he coveted. See, as soon as you start dwelling on it, you're going to want it. People come in all the time, I can't stop thinking about it. Well, because you want to think about it. It's pleasurable. It sounds good. It feels good. No one ever says, I want to think about a root canal. No one ever wants to do that. You want to think about something good. So you see it. It looks good. It looks nice. And that's the temptation. That's not a sin yet. But it's when you allow that temptation to be, I covet. Because you know what the next thing after coveting is? You're going to take. And after you take it, you know it's wrong. We covered this last week. You know it's wrong. I can't remember if I said it this service or the other service before. 99% of the time, you know it's wrong. So what do you do? You hit it. No, Aiken. Why'd you hide it? Because he knows it's wrong. And so therefore, he hit it. God saw it. God revealed it. What's the result of this? Aiken is stoned to death. See, that's the effect of sin. Sin brings forth death. So all those little things that you and I do that we really don't think are a big deal because we hide them in the dirt under our tent, oh my goodness, it affects more people than you'll ever know. It affects your family. When I sin, it affects my wife, it affects my kids, it affects the church. Some of you may be thinking, that's why I'm not married, I don't have kids, and I'm not a pastor. You still have a circle that it affects. See, it goes back to what we talked about in Corinthians with Paul. We all have a sphere of influence. You, you all have a sphere of influence. And we've mentioned this numerous times before, so forgive me for the repetition, but it's important to note again. You have a group of people that you spiritually influence. For me, I spiritually influence my wife, my kids, and Harvest Fellowship. That's my sphere of influence. So you know what that means? If I have an Aiken moment, if I have a David moment, that sin, when it becomes public, will affect my wife, my kids, and Harvest Fellowship. Everybody's sphere is a different size. Maybe you're not married. Maybe you only have a handful of friends. 
Maybe you only have a handful of coworkers. You still have a sphere of influence. You still do. And so what happens is how you live your life will dictate your spiritual light to those people. It truly will. And your goal, going back to some of our first points, is to bear fruit for God. And so therefore, how we live affects them. And just when we have an Aiken moment, we do one little thing, it brings forth death to many people. It truly does. Now, we get to what I call the good stuff in Romans 7. Because now we sit here and say, what am I supposed to do? The first five chapters, God loves me. He gives me the gospel. I'm a sinner. I get that. Chapter 6, I'm supposed to die to sin. I get that. I'm still struggling. Chapter 7, I'm supposed to die to the sin and produce fruit. I get that. But James, I'm still struggling. Well, from verse 15 on in Romans 7 is some of the most honest passages in the Bible. Maybe the only other honest, more honest assessment of themselves is Psalm 51 by David. But this is an honest assessment. Just let's listen to this. Verse 15 of Romans 7. What I am, let's go back to verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. Is, is that not a picture of us? Okay, what I want to do, I'm not doing. And what I don't want to do, that I'm doing. Verse 16. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but there's sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. The evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Isn't that one of the most honest assessments you've ever seen? I, I can just so relate to this. I am, verse 19, for the good that I want to do, I do not do. The evil I don't want to do, that I practice. That's my life verse right there. Lord, I want to do good. I desire good. I really want to do it. Look at verse 22. I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. There's a part of me in, in, my, in my soul. I want to be good. We say to Kenan all the time, number three, he's the most evil of all the four, but we love him. We say, we say Kenan, we say, I, we think you want to be a good boy. We think you do, but you just don't. He wants to be a good boy. I think he really does. Spiritually, I, Lord, I want to be a good boy. <laughs> I do. I, I want to I get up in the morning and do devotions. I, I want to pray. I want to shut the TV off more in the evening. Lord, I, I don't want to lust anymore at things I shouldn't have. I don't want to get angry anymore at my kids or wife. Lord, I, I want to be, verse 22, of the law of God, an inward man. I want that. But the problem is, I got verse 18. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. I know that if I delight in the law of God, like it says in verse 22, my day goes better. I know if I get up in the morning and start out my day in prayer and in the Word, it will go better. I know that if I'm more loving towards my wife and have more patience with her, marriage goes better. I know if I'm more patient with my kids, things go better. I know out here at church, if I spend more time praying about the situations that you guys are facing, more time in prep for the Word, I know that it just goes better. Not because of my effort, but because God honors that. I know that. I know that my inward man, verse 22, that's what I want to do. I know it. But... I have, verse 18, flesh in me. So therefore, I do, verse 19, the good that I want to do, I do not do. The evil I don't want to do, that I practice. So what happens is I throw my hands up in the air, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. I sit there and I have these moments of, Lord, I 
I just sin. Problem is, we stop at verse 24. See, a lot of us get to verse 24 and we come to the realization of we're, we're not right. We're not good. We're not what we're supposed to be doing. And we never go to verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, the answer is found in verse 25. Problem is, too many of us stop at verse 24. Oh, woe is me. I've shared this story before. Years ago, I had a, a guy I really, really respected that uh, came out here and he was telling me a story one time. He was doing a counseling session with a guy. And this guy called him up and this guy was having a verse 24 moment. Wretched man that I am. I remember him saying, I'm a horrible father, I'm a horrible husband. And I remember he summed it up by saying, I'm just a loser. And this guy told me that his counseling advice was, yeah, you are a loser and I'm a loser. Does it take you this long to figure it out? And that's the truth. We're all spiritual losers. Now, are you going to stay at that in verse 24 or are you going to move on? It's kind of like Joshua. Get up. So you can sit at verse 24 and just focus on everything that's wrong and how you're not perfect and you got sin in your life. How could God ever love you? And uh, Yeah, okay. Verse 25, Jesus is the answer. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, here's the thing. We don't know for sure, so this is just throwing it out there, take it or leave it, but where Paul was originally from, what they used to do if you were found guilty of being a murderer is if you were guilty of murder, they would actually take the body or the body of an animal of what, and put that on your back. Sometimes they would actually take the corpse of the person that you killed and they would tie it to you. So you'd have to carry around the dead body as your punishment. So therefore... As that body is decomposing literally on you, that's the effects of your actions. So when it says in verse 24, who will deliver me from this body of death? Maybe you kind of see what Paul could be saying there. But even if it's not that, who will deliver me from this, this body of death? See, here's the thing. I walk around with a decaying body right in front of you. Who's going to deliver me from this sin? Verse 25, Jesus Christ. If you want to stay at verse 24, there's nothing we can do for you. But if you want hope, just go one verse further to 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with the mind, I'm also, I myself serve the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. There is a battle until the day you die. There's a battle until the day you die. Now, I think it's important to do verse 1 of Romans 8 because what happens is we sit here now and we say, I'm a horrible person. And we condemn ourselves. Look at verse 1 of Romans 8. Now, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Are you battling condemnation? See, convictions from God, condemnations from Satan. Well, what's the difference? Condemnation literally means a damnatory sentence is what it literally means. Someone is judging you and sentencing you and throwing away the key. Conviction is someone pointing out your sin to help you make you live a better life. Condemnation is you are pointless. Seriously, you are worthless to the body of Christ. You are a horrible father. You're a horrible husband. You're a horrible pastor. Why are you even still teaching? Why are you? Why does, why does Dawn put up with you? That's condemnation. Now, there may be some truth in that, but that's still condemnation. Conviction is God saying, James, I love you enough to tell you there's things you need to work on. You need to work on being a better husband. You need to work on being a better father. You need to work on being a better pastor. Condemnation is there's, there's no hope for you. Just quit. Let somebody else take over. It's just pointless. You have, called, you have scarred your kids so much. Condemnation. It's easy to see the difference. Condemnation pushes you away from God. It sentences you to death. Conviction pulls you closer to God to say, I want to work on this with you. And so, what voice do you hear? Because once again, verse 1, if you focus on condemnation, how are you ever going to move forward? It goes back to that whole you are moment. You can sit there all day and just talk about how horrible of your person you are. What good comes out of that? Get up. Yeah, there's things that need to be worked on. Let's work on them. Oh, how could I ever do anything? 
Because God works in you, not you. It goes back to verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, we're not perfect. Yes, there's things we need to work on. But are we going to focus on that sin that pulls us down? Or are we going to focus on the answer to that sin that is found in Christ Jesus? That's the purpose of Romans 6 and 7, is we die to that sin and we move forward in Christ. What I want to finish with this is in the book of Galatians. Turn, if you will, with me to Galatians 5. This is what we're finishing with. It all comes down to this. What choice are you going to make? What choice? Galatians 5 sums this up very nicely. Galatians 5, verse 16. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another. So you do not do the things that you wish. Isn't that us? There's a flesh in me, and there's a Spirit in me. Which one am I going to listen to? Which one am I going to obey? If I obey the flesh, guess what? That's going to get powerful. If I obey the Spirit flesh dies right in front of my eyes. And what happens is too often in our lives, in our marriages, in our relationships, in our witnesses, and just in our private life, we walk in the flesh. That flesh side becomes really strong. So when someone comes in and says, I can't say no to it, I think there's an element of truth that it's really hard for them to say no to it. Why? Because you're constantly walking in the flesh. We have to die to that flesh and start to walk in the spirit. And as you walk in the spirit, the flesh just dies right in front of your eyes. I have to ask, which one are you? See, if you look through verses 19 through 21 of Galatians 5, what are you? Now the works of the flesh are evident. Adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred. You can go through the list. They're outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, envy, murders, lusts. Okay, is that you? Are you verses 22 and 23? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. See, it goes back to some of our earlier points here today. Every action we do is fruit. It's either fruit to death or it's fruit to life. I'm willing to bet if you look at your life, you're either in verses 19 through 21 or you're in verses 22 through 23. Pretty simple to probably put that action in one of those two categories. Well, if it's verses 19 through 21, your flesh side will grow. You'll always battle against the Spirit, and you'll always be miserable. But if you're in verses 22 through 23, just listen to these words. Love, joy, peace. That's, that's what I want. That's the tree I want to eat off of. Verse 24. Those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's a refrigerator verse. Those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Have you crucified the flesh through Christ? Are you living in the Spirit? Are you walking in the Spirit? That's where true peace and joy comes from. It's an ongoing battle in your life, in your marriage, and everything to constantly jump back in the flesh. It is a battle. But when you walk in the Spirit, it's not that you're not fighting anymore. But dare I say, maybe the battle comes just a hair easier. And this is what Paul is trying to tell us here in Romans 7. Walk in the Spirit. Stay in the Spirit. Let the Spirit do the work for you. We're wretched people, but the answer is found in Jesus Christ. Marv, if you want to come forward here for the final song.